is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. President-elect Joe Biden is taking office after a year rocked by a deadly pandemic, racial injustice, and most recently, violent evidence of the country's deep political divide. New Yorker Magazine staff writer and Biden biographer Evan Osnos says the new president needs to grapple with a whole-of-society problem that will take a whole-of-society solution. Biden told Osnos how he was affected by the video of George Floyd's death at the hands of police and the Black Lives Matters protests that followed. He said, I learned in that moment that the words of a president can give hate oxygen. They matter. Hate will hide under a rock and it will come roaring out if a president gives it the opportunity. And the flip side of that is that a president also has the ability to set the moral temperature for how we shall live. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Today's conversation is from the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. Journalist Evan Osnos's latest book is about Joe Biden, the life, the run, and what matters now. He says the new president is a centrist, but as the country moves further left, the center moves with it. Osnos speaks with Margaret Brennan of Face the Nation on CBS News. They discuss how Biden may be well-suited for this moment in history and why his experience with loss and grief gives him the ability to connect with people in important ways, how Catholic faith is truly part of who he is, and why it's valuable to make the vice presidency into a meaningful role. Osnos also speaks about his perspective being in the Capitol during the violence on January 6th. Here's Brennan. We put so much in our public discourse on the shoulders of the commander in chief and the president when it comes to fixing problems. Even though we have all this architecture of government, we tend to talk about it uh, based on the personality of the individual who, who steps into that role. And Joe Biden, the president elect is doing that at this extraordinary moment. Last week, just put an exclamation point on that sentence. I know you were on Capitol Hill, uh, on Wednesday. And, and I want to ask you about that moment, because when I talk to people around the country as part of um, just the communication I do for my show, it occurred to me suddenly in conversation that a lot of people outside of Washington thought this was just a rally turned wrong, maybe a riot. They see it and understand it differently than those of us in the nation's capital who have framed it as an assault on democracy. You were there. Tell me what you saw. Thanks, Margaret. And I have to say, you know, it is a, it's, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks to Aspen for pulling us together, despite all of the obvious obstacles in our way. I think having a conversation like this is part of the process of sort of processing it as a country, mm -hmm. getting over it, um, but reckoning with it in a serious way, not sort of, you know, putting it in the memory hole. I, I, look, I will tell you, Margaret, when I was standing there, I'm standing at the foot of the Capitol building. It's a place that you and I know well. And I was a foreign correspondent for a long time. I'm sort of accustomed to being in outdoor environments where things are moving in strange ways. I've covered riots in various countries uh, over the years in Egypt or Iraq or mm -hmm. you know, China. And to see it now here, uh, a couple of miles from where I live, was disorienting. I mean, truly, uh, not just because it was so at odds with how we thought our country was functioning and how we think of that sacred terrain right around the citadel of democracy, the Capitol, but really because of what it said to me about the future we're contending with. You know, the interesting thing was it was not the 
frankly, it was not the thugs, the young guys, military age guys who were breaking windows and climbing in that that surprised me because sure, that that kind of group exists in every country and, and given an opportunity, motivated uh, in that particular deluded way, we'll do it. What surprised me and what was chilling was the conversations I had with grandmothers, people who were standing at the foot of this scene with tear gas washing over the crowd because of this fundamental violence against democracy. And they were saying, this seems right to me. This seems okay. Because as some specifically one person said to me, who's in the piece I wrote in the New Yorker, I think we're here to overturn the results of the election. And I, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm surprised we haven't achieved it yet. That I found really distressing, Margaret, because that's a problem that's going to take years to unwind. Uh, that's not something that is solved when one president leaves the scene and another arrives. Mm -hmm. This doesn't disappear on January 20th at noon when the president-elect gets sworn in. That's right. You know what, though? I, here's an interesting point, though, that I think sometimes gets lost in this. I see this as a we're dealing with a whole of society problem and it's going to take a whole of society solution now in terms of sort of depoisoning the minds of people who have been truly whipped up into a uh, into the delusion that Trump won this election. But the words of a president matter. They matter extraordinarily. I mean, to your point, we put this incredible load on the shoulders of a president and sometimes we overdo it when in fact mm -hmm. it's it has to be distributed. But the words of a president matter. I had this really quite telling moment with with uh, with Joe Biden, with the president-elect, uh, it was over the summer when he was, we were all still absorbing the impact of the Black Lives Matter protests. And I said, what did you learn from that, from, from that experience? He said, well, one thing I've learned is that um, watching that video, the video of George Floyd on in the ground being killed by a police officer, he said, I learned in, in that moment that, you, that the words of a president can give hate oxygen. Mm -hmm. They matter. Hate will hide under a rock and it will come roaring out if a president gives it the opportunity. And, on this, and the flip side of that is that a president also has the ability to set the, the moral temperature, to call it that, for how we shall live. And I think that's the task that he's gonna face as he steps in, is beginning to say to people, Let's, you know, and I don't want to use this, what is now an exhausted and I think in many ways flawed term, this is not who we are, but to say, this is not who we want to be. Mm -hmm. And that's a big idea. And it's one that I think he takes very seriously as part of the presidency. You know, the theme of unity and the theme of healing is something that we heard throughout the campaign. But it seems to me after these last few days, um, and I shared this with you, that I have seen... Um, uh, a, a starkness of vitriol from the extremes <clears throat> that seems elevated. It has not dissipated as a result. In fact, I think um, there is anger. And you talk about in the book that it, well in advance of this, it was written on the wall that one of the things Joe Biden will have to grapple with is not just how to deal with Trumpism and pressure from the right. It's within his own party and convincing them of the best path forward. There is real anger on the left about what just happened. Very rightfully so, there should be anger. But that idea of moving from that to January 20th healing and unity 
seems even harder now than it was before. How is he going to navigate that? Well, it's in a way, what he has to do is figure out a way to separate the question of accountability from the, from the topic of vengeance. Because they are, in a sense, they are separate co-equal branches of our, of our political lives. You know, you have to have accountability for when people break the law, even people at the, top, at the height of our political system. Well, one of the things we've learned over the last four years is that there's a permission structure and that if you allow somebody to get away with terrible things, they will get away with them again and they'll try them again. Mm -hmm. He has no choice but to say we need to investigate this as fully as we did other assaults on our national security and our dignity and our sense of ourselves, including 9-11. I mean, you're seeing a comparable level of the apparatus of government, as you know, kind of lurching into gear now. This is going to be a process of investigating the origins of this. Uh, that is going to, I think, surprise Americans how far it goes and how, how much it draws in the full resources of government. That's a different thing than saying that I will now render my political opponents um, irredeemable mm-hmm. and that I will declare that by virtue of their stated partisan affiliation, their identity, that I will find them illegitimate. Make them illegitimate for their actions, but not for their identity. And I think that's a key fact. And I think in a way, if somebody wants to make themselves uh, inadmissible as a participant in government by saying, I mean, even to the point of saying, look, if I refuse to wear a mask on the floor of the House of Representatives, thereby endangering my fellow representatives, breaking the law, if that's the case, well, then you are essentially opting out of the privilege of being able to serve in the U.S. House. I think there's coming a point where you're going to begin to see people drawing those lines and saying we have to treat these offenses as what they are. They are offenses. But that is completely different than saying, I don't want to see a Republican quoted in the New Yorker magazine. I don't mm-hmm. want to see uh, somebody who has been, um, who I disagree with, you know, I don't want to see them being questioned. I, I don't want to see them subjected to, um, in a way, our system thrives when we subject ideas and people to scrutiny. Uh, and that's different than giving them a pass and pretending that what they're doing is normal. Um, That, I think, from Joe Biden's perspective, the challenge is going to be separating the task of accountability, rigorous accountability, from the emotional surge and temptation for vengeance. So the thing that will present him most swiftly after inauguration is, well, if if the incoming majority leader in the Senate, uh, Chuck Schumer, does decide to go ahead and have a Senate impeachment trial, which to date, Joe Biden has tried not to comment on directly. Um, but he will also have to deal with how his Justice Department uh, handles prosecution on all of this. Uh, In the book, you spoke to Pete Buttigieg, the uh, nominee to be Transportation Secretary, about this idea of what happens well in advance of the violence. But you talked to him and he said, this can't be a partisan process of victor's justice. This has to be about national healing values and norms. But When you were talking to Obama administration aides, they said one of the things they learned in the early years is that there's nothing gained from not holding more people accountable. Um, Don't have politically motivated prosecutions, but you have to do something, essentially. What is that something? Mm. You know, are we in this Ford pardoning Nixon moment or is the moment calling for something different? How does Joe Biden heal while also holding people accountable? 
fascinating area for us to explore. I, I think if you, interestingly, one of the things that Pete Buttigieg and I talked about that day, and I think has become more uh, urgent as an idea, is the proposal to say, let's establish commi a commission that is not a you know, back page issue that doesn't get any attention. Remember the 9-11 Commission. It was a serious piece of work that looked at the failures of our institutions, the failures to heed the warnings that, prevent, that would have prevented a disaster perhaps, and say, let's apply that same level of attention, not just to what happened on January 6th. We have to start with talking about what happened with COVID because that is a level of failure, an abdication of responsibility, a failure of, of decision-making that requires that kind of thorough study. Now, look, it is possible that a commission on COVID or, and I think it's very likely we will see a commission on the events of January 6th, that that will eventually elicit and produce information that leads to referrals to prosecution. That's not impossible. But what you don't wanna have, and this is where Joe Biden draws, I think, a bright line, is he says that part of what, what Donald Trump did that invited and required a response, the reason why Joe Biden ran it all, was that he got personally involved in prosecution. And that that idea of a president interfering in the decisions about how to apply the rule of law and when and how to prioritize prosecutions, that that is not a way for a democracy to function. He says, that's why we have these institutions. That's not the job of a president. Um, and so what I think you're likely to see is this is not just Joe Biden wanting to sort of stay out of the fray. I think that's been part of it for now. But he believes that if he becomes personally involved in either pursuing the conviction of Donald Trump or pursuing the vindication of Donald Trump, the exoneration, that he's, he's degrading the institution of the presidency and, in fact, of the justice system. I would not count on Joe Biden to be issuing any pardons anytime soon to Donald Trump. I think we can count on that. Um, that but then, is then you get into that scenario that James Comey, the former FBI director, took a lot of flack for yeah. saying but saying, look, okay, so we go through with some kind of prosecution or debate about prosecution or talk about it, and you're putting more oxygen in there. You're putting a spotlight, in fact, and TV cameras on the president, the then former president, once again. Yeah. And that becomes something that the president-elect has to balance against. You know, what we're going through right now in the United States Congress this week is essentially the form of prosecution that the founders imagined for presidents. We can talk separately about whether or not once he's out of office, he's subject to civil and criminal prosecution. We are going through the process that was conceived for how you deal with somebody who has not just failed in their responsibilities, but done violence to the institution of the presidency. He was just impeached. The second time in America, you know, the first time in American history that anybody, of course, has been impeached twice. And whether or not there's a Senate trial, we'll then have a second round to consider it. But, but it's a, we don't have to decide today whether there are criminal charges to be brought on him for the events of January 6th, but you just used an impeachment trial for that. What we do know is that at least two American jurisdictions, Manhattan and the state of New York, have active criminal and civil investigations going of this, of this president and his associates. And so he may find his day in court in various ways. And I think Joe Biden is saying it would be, it would be a mistake for me as the president to begin to wade into that issue sooner than I have to. And I, I yeah. think that's probably prudent. There is going to be so much scrutiny of his Justice Department. Um, there already would have been before this happened, 
but also because of his son, Hunter Biden, and what we learned after the election, which was the revelation that the U.S. attorney in Delaware was indeed conducting an investigation, which Hunter Biden and the campaign described as tax related. Um, how is that going to be handled? And is there a way in which it can be handled where transparency is believed? Mm. Well, it's going to be on the shoulders of Merrick Garland, after all, who comes into this job as attorney general at a moment of extraordinary complexity. I mean, even before you get to the matter of an ongoing investigation into the president's son, you know, people talk about the idea, will there be a call for a special counsel? Uh, possible. I think there is a there's a political hesitation against it because we've seen over the last few years how special counsel's investigations can grow, they can mutate, they can go into areas that are far beyond where they originated. Um, and also that is essentially to say, you know, if you adopt a special counsel, you're saying that you don't think the Justice Department as currently constituted can do it by itself. We don't know that at this point. Um, we know some things about Hunter Biden's business experience and his uh, time uh, working, particularly in Ukraine. There's more to learn about his time in China. But after all, two Republican-led committees in the Congress have looked into this. Um, the results of their investigation, anything they found, are, 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 uh, have, have been sort of entered into the public life. So I think, in a, not to get too far down the road here, but I have a hunch that we may ultimately find that uh, there's less of a story at the end of this road than we might imagine there is now, that this may be more known to us already uh, than what the ultimate results of this, of what seems to be a tax investigation will produce. But we'll mm -hmm. see. Uh, we don't know. Uh, and then we have that broader challenge of believing transparency and believing um, a common set of facts. Do you expect uh, that we will hear frequently from the president. What president-elect on the campaign trail did not engage much with the press. He rarely gave interviews. Yeah. Um, that's why I found it so interesting in parts to read your book. We didn't get to know him as a candidate this time around for a variety of reasons, because of the pandemic, but also because he doesn't sit down very often and talk to journalists. Is that going to change? You know, Margaret, what's interesting about Biden as an interviewee, I mean, this gets to the very origins of why I undertook this project. How did I get interested in Joe Biden? It was partly because I'd been a foreign correspondent. I come back to the U.S. I moved to Washington and I was interested in foreign affairs and Joe Biden was interested in foreign affairs. Mm -hmm. The truth is, and this will not be a shock to you, as you well know, the vice presidency is not the most beloved, glamorized office in Washington. And Biden was not very much in demand as an interviewee. So I, you know, I called his office. I said, I'd like to set up an interview to talk about foreign affairs. And that was, that was doable. I mean, it, honestly, it felt like in a way, as, after I started talking to him, this was in 2014, it he felt to me like an underutilized resource from a reporting mm. perspective, because here he was doing a lot. He was involved in, in a lot of issues. He was very obviously uh, last one in the room with the president. And yet, he wasn't where a lot of the reporting energy was directed, understandably. Um, but it felt to me like there was more there. Fast forward to 2020 and or 2019, really. And in the early stages of this presidential race, when when he was not rated very highly, and that was fair, actually. I mean, there was a period in this race when he was very close to the end. We could talk about that if we want to. 
Um, but when it finally happened that he was then clearly on the path to the nomination, that's when it became time to really sit down and say, all right, I need to talk to him again in detail, partly so I can benchmark it and say, how does he sound to me today versus when mm -hmm. I first started talking to him six years ago? How's his mind working? Um, but, I, you know, I think from a, from a sort of transparency and availability perspective, you're likely to see what is a normal presidency, which is to say he's not going to give in to, uh, yeah, exactly. He's mm -hmm. not going to give in to every invitation on his way to, uh, to Marine One right. to go over to the microphone. And, you know, we're coming off a period in which this is a president who cannot resist the opportunity of a microphone. Joe Biden takes the longer view and says, I'll pick my shots. I'm going to pick my moments when I talk. But I think you're right. There's going to be a pressure on him to do a lot more than he has done. Mm -hmm. um, I am interested in following up on what you just talked about, about a moment where he was at a weak point on the campaign trail. I remember sitting down with him in February. I think it was February 19th or so. It was um, right before South Carolina. And uh, he was tense. It was not, it did not go well for him in Nevada. Um, and it really wasn't clear what the path forward was. And then boom, South Carolina delivered him the shot in the arm he needed and everyone took a step back and gave him center stage. How close was he to actually bowing out? I mean, that is that period when you were there with him is a crucial piece of that history because there was a moment right around Nevada. I mean, remember, he came in in New Hampshire so poorly that they they actually left New Hampshire before the results were announced so that they wouldn't be on the ground when the numbers came in and he would have to be photographed kind of in a dreary condition. They said, we're going to South Carolina. We want to point to the future. Uh, I didn't put this in the book, but it was actually quite an interesting moment that happened when um, Anita Dunn, uh, who was after all very senior in the campaign, effectively running the campaign in many respects, she had the unwelcome job of calling Joe Biden to say, look, uh, this thing may be over in a week. And if it's over in a week, um, you're going to need to keep enough cash on hand to, you know, wind down the operation, pay people and make sure that they get severance and so on. She called him on a day he happened to be on the Amtrak, as he you know, often is. He was on his way, I think, either to or from New York uh, for an appearance. And I said, how did he respond to that? You know, the news, essentially, that his campaign is on life support. Did he rage against the heavens? I mean, there's a lot of ways a person in that moment could respond. And she said, no, actually, he was he was calm. And he said a version of what he has said to me in the past about presidential races, which is I've lost a lot more than this in my life. And if I lose this, I'll be able to deal with it. And I think there's a deep lesson in there about how he confronts issues of political loss and gain, mm -hmm. uh, and how he how he how he understands it in the context of his biography. You spend some time on his biography, clearly, in this book, in terms of what the public knows well, the awful loss he has had throughout his life, the health struggles he's also had himself. But one of the things that I think is interesting and will be interesting to watch is the degree to which, and you kind of gestured to it there, at least it was suggestive to me in his language you described, of faith mm -hmm. and religion Mm -hmm. and what that's going to be like. I mean, Joe Biden will only be the second Catholic elected president in this country. It was controversial when it was Kennedy. Um, and for Joe Biden, he is a church going liberal who yeah. puts his faith out front in a way that as we heard on the campaign trail, P Pete Buttigieg said, 
liberals were making a mistake by not embracing faith in their language and by not embracing other Americans of faith within to the party. And I, I'm going to be interested to see how Joe Biden weaves that in to his presidency, certainly in policymaking. Um, but what are we actually going to see? I mean, every Sunday he's going to leave the White House and we're going to go to church with them on camera. How is that going to work? You know what's amazing? He is, I think, Margaret, you know, he is uh, he's a devout man. It is a real part of his life. I mean, it is a very personal matter for him. And I mean, to the point that people I don't think fully appreciate, there are three times in his young life when he thought about becoming a priest. He started talking about it in middle school. He talked about it again later. In fact, then after the death of his wife and his daughter, he's on his way to the U.S. Senate. And he actually went to go see the bishop in Wilmington, Delaware, and said, I think I want to become a priest. And the bishop said to him, actually, uh, I don't think that's a good idea. And there was, a, there, was a, there was a provision that he wanted to use. He'd already thought about it enough. He'd done his research that he said, you can grant me a waiver, even though I've been married, you can allow me to become a priest. The priest said, look, uh, the bishop said, I don't think this is a good idea. I want you to take a year and think about it and then come back to me if you still want to do it. I don't think this is your calling. And Biden went off, of course, became a Senate, the Senator and the rest is history. Um, but what's different about his faith is that it is a in a way, it's more of a private, personal matter than it is a public feature of his of his political identity. It's an interesting comparison to say somebody like Mike Pence or others who have been very forward in their faith in politics. Biden has a testy relationship with the church, but he doesn't have a testy relationship with Catholicism. And that's an interesting distinction. He is at home in his belief. It's a big part of his life. One thing I, I mentioned in the book, which to me was one of the most interesting moments in the process of this research. I spoke to Stephen Colbert. You know, Colbert is a, is a Catholic. He is somebody who also has this strange point of shared experience with Biden. Uh, Colbert, when he was young, his father was killed in a car accident. His brothers died in a plane crash, I should say, uh, and his brothers. And there was a day when Biden was going to see Colbert. Um, this is shortly after the death of Beau Biden in 2015. And they had never met before. And, and Colbert got a message that said, Biden wants to talk to you backstage before you guys talk in public. This was one of the first times Biden was coming out to speak. And the two of them met backstage just privately. And I asked Colbert, I said, what did you talk about? And he said, frankly, we talked about our mothers, the rosary. We talked about Catholicism. We talked about loss and tragedy and grief. And he said to me personally, it was one of the most affecting conversations I've ever had in my life. And he, and he explained it. He said, look, Biden has this ability to talk about grief in a way that makes other grieving people feel uh, that he understands them. He sees them, to use the language of now. And what Colbert said to me really, really stayed with me. He said, when you're, in, when you're grieving that way, when you're mourning, very often people treat you like you're radioactive. There's something about it that feels almost contagious. People don't want to go near it. They don't want to talk about it. And Biden doesn't allow that. He puts it in front of you and he says, I have grieved, I have recovered, and you will too. And I think the lesson right now is we are a country that is mourning. We are mourning literally for our families in the COVID epidemic. And we are mourning a sense of ourselves as a political culture and how we got into this moment of such complete abject uh, failure. 
And that ability to talk about grief in unadorned ways, neither making more of it than it should and not minimizing it is his asset that he comes to office with. And it's unbelievably rare in Washington for somebody to be as acquainted with grieving as he is. And I think we'll find, we'll find that that proves to be a more valuable entity than we may assume at the outset. One of the moments you recount in the book is um, a conversation during the Obama administration in which Joe Biden, then vice president, his insight was kind of dismissed um, by Obama advisors, specifically, as I recall, on the issue of um, mandating the provision of birth control under uh, the Affordable Care Act and how that would be received by religious uh, institutions or people of faith. And Joe Biden said, wait a second, I see problems here. And the Obama folks were like, God, that's like old thinking. And they really kind of laughed him out of the room. And then fast forward a few years, as you recount in the book, that was so resonant, Mm. particularly with conservatives and so resonant with the Mike Pence of the world and and, and that way of thinking. Um, And I just wonder if there is something that he can tap into through faith that allows for that unity, or at least for that understanding that maybe um, maybe has felt belittled yeah. in, in the past by the Democratic Party. He talks the talk and walks the walk. This is baked into how he sees himself as a citizen, as a, as a practitioner of government, and certainly as a person of faith. Look, he sees family and religion essentially as the basic building blocks on which his vision of America depends. Now, that is a big idea, actually, because... That's always been one of the things that puts him at slightly out of, out of at odds with other Democratic Party leaders. You know, he has never been in every respect a member of the in crowd. He didn't go to the schools. He didn't have the same measures of credentialed achievement that they did. And, and that's a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Um, you know, he, he is very conscious of slights, both real and imagined. But what it also means is that he really does have a more attuned understanding of what it means to feel marginalized, to feel as if a feature of your culture that you think is important is being dishonored. And he takes that quite seriously. Now, look, I'll be clear, though, Margaret, I I think there is a a level, a kind of a barrier that has been erected uh, in front of him that is going to prevent a lot of conservatives from seeing him and hearing him for what he's actually saying, that the level of our polarization makes it almost impossible to really say, okay, I'm listening to him and what he says is, is something that means something to me. Part of the task is for him to lower the temperature. I'm going to mangle the metaphors here, but begin that lowering that barrier so that he can be, be seen for what he's really saying. Um, and in a way, you know, one of the most perceptive comments I, I heard along the way, Margaret, from somebody who worked very closely with Biden and with Obama in the White House was, I think we're ready for a, a boring president again for a while. That's not an insult. That's actually <laughs> right. a compliment. And I think probably a lot of us would agree. Journalists might agree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ironically. How much has Biden been moved left by his party? Is there any change in his approach to governing compared to four years ago? Yeah, really interesting question. Uh, The answer is uh, yes, he has moved left, but probably not as far left as some people might think. Um, He is, to use, I think, a perceptive description that somebody else told me who'd worked very closely with him 
in the White House. And they said Joe Biden is a perfect weather vane for the center of the Democratic Party. And that is true. And the, the, the point about that is that as the party has moved left, he has moved left. But by being a weather vane for the center, he is never going to be the guy who is farthest forward at the frontier of progressive issues. And he also doesn't want to be the one who is trailing behind being sort of abandoned by history. He wants to find that place. It's one of the reasons why he got to uh, support of same-sex marriage even before President Obama did. It was his sense of where the party was going. And um, now the reason why I say that he has moved there is you know, one of the things that he said to Bernie Sanders in a private phone call when he was coming to, to, to Bernie after Bernie had dropped out of the race. And he said to him, according to an aide who was in the room, a Sanders aide, um, I want to be the most progressive president since FDR. And Bernie later said, I take him, I take him at his word and I believe him, actually. And the interesting thing is there's a huge amount they disagree on. Biden is by nature a centrist. That is his core identity and it's his perception. It's his real theory of politics. But what that also means is that he has to be responsive to when the circumstances are pulling the country to the left. The country is, in fact, the party is certainly moving to the left and he wants to be a part of that. So I'll give you just one, one practical example. When it came time for him to create these task forces um, before the uh, election day, when he was trying to build his platform and he knew he had to reflect the views of the left side of his party as much as the middle, he called on AOC and he asked her to be the co-chair of his environmental uh, task force. And so there she was with John Kerry, the two of them as co-chairs, and I spoke to progressive activists, environmental activists from the Sunrise Movement who were part of that. And they said, we were surprised at how responsive he was to us, but we also didn't think we were gonna walk out of there with him endorsing the Green New Deal. And sure enough, of course he didn't. So you have to understand that he is true to his basic view of government, which is that we should probably linger somewhere around the middle, but the middle moves and he wants to move with it. Will he proceed with Democrat-only solutions, now that Democrats have the White House, the Senate, and House majorities, or do you expect he will address major issues in an attempt to get bipartisan solutions? I have no doubt. I think he's going to try to get bipartisan solutions, and that will irritate a lot of Democrats. There are people who are going to say, you're wasting time, you're playing into a trap, you're going to lose this key period. You've got maybe two years before you lose one of the houses of Congress. Um, but Biden is not casually committed to the idea of bipartisanship. He thinks things work better if you can get Republican support. What that means is trying to galvanize some of the energy, which we've seen just in the last few days. You know, we just had the most bipartisan impeachment process in American history. Ten Republicans um, backed away from this president in the House of Representatives in order to back impeachment. That is also uh, the beginning of something. There are young Republican members of Congress who are coming in who say, this is crazy. I don't wanna be a part of that old paralysis. I wanna do something, I'm here to work. And what Biden's gonna try to do is peel off people around the edges, maybe not formally peel them off, get them to change parties, so that's not impossible. Um, you know, I, I sometimes am reminded of the fact, Margaret, that in, 19, in 2009, when he came in as part of the uh, Obama administration, he was tasked with trying to lure Arlen Specter over from the Republican Party of the Democrats, and he succeeded. That was a Biden project. So he has an ability to tell people, 
I understand your interests. I see you. I don't pretend that this isn't real, that you have real attachments to the Republican Party. Um, but meet me on common ground and let's see if we can get something done. And I think there may be more people that are willing to do that than we assume today. This is so completely in flux. I'm not sure uh, what insight you have into the relationship with his vice president, but uh, this question is about what you've observed regarding their dynamics and what he may envision her role to be and how it could change now that she is the tie-breaking vote in the Senate. Well, interestingly, uh, Biden comes to this in a slightly unusual position because he was a vice president, so he cares about the office. Um, he was very suspicious of the office when it was first offered to him. He didn't want to be vice president. He said, can anybody, this is what he said to his staff, he said, can anybody here even name who Lincoln's vice president was? <laughs> he then had a profound transformation of his views because what he decided was that the vice presidency is only as powerful as the president makes it. It's only as meaningful as it is. And he takes pride in the fact that he thinks he was an important piece of Obama's uh, record. He helped Obama on things that Obama needed, on foreign affairs, on relationships to Capitol Hill. Um, he needs a slightly different set of contributions, in a sense, from, from, uh, from the vice president-elect. He doesn't need foreign affairs help. He knows how to do that. He doesn't need relations with the Hill. That's his area. What he desperately needs, however, is a connection to this much broader country, a more diverse country than he represents in his own person. Um, he's he is. I, I'm going to break news here, Margaret. He is a white male in his eighth decade. And <laughs> the reality is he knows it. And he knows that he has to figure out ways of making sure that he understands what people care about and that he has a real ear to it. And Kamala Harris is a crucial piece of helping him succeed. Um, but it's early days. Well, what we haven't heard, this is a, one last point on this is, um, interestingly, you know, Biden's view of the vice presidency is that it should be a general advisor to the president. This is, a, this is language that came to him from uh, Walter Mondale. And I spoke to Mondale about it, that, you know, in a sense, they were similar positions. They had an outsider coming into the presidency. Bar Barack Obama had been in Washington just a few years. Um, how do you help him succeed? And the way you do it is by being a general advisor. Don't get tasked with some narrow gig because that's going to marginalize you. And that's what he aimed to do. He got some portfolios when he was vice president, but I think you're likely to want, you're likely to see him wanting Kamala Harris to be a general advisor, keep him plugged in, keep him getting things right. Um, and then she'll take on some specific portfolio elements. Uh, I mean, it is somewhat predictable just given the kind of spending that has been required to get us out of this crisis we're still in. And you just look at the past few years uh, of policymaking and the prediction of taxes going up seems just inevitable. Um, what will his policies be in light of the ballooning debt? Well, I think, you know, for one thing, uh, we need to be vigilant here that the debt has ballooned under a Republican president with a Republican Senate. So it's going to be uh, a point of political accountability not to allow folks to turn around tomorrow and say, all right, now I'm desperately concerned about the debt because they weren't all that concerned about it for the last four years. And I think that's something the Democrats are worried about. All of a sudden, the deficit hawks come out of hibernation and begin to say we can't spend on mm -hmm. things that Democrats want. Um, but the debt is clearly an issue. It's something that he takes seriously. But uh, you know, I think his immediate view would be before we can begin to deal with the debt, uh, we have to deal with the crisis before us. And the crisis before us is 
is COVID, COVID, and COVID. I mean, that is the ball game from his perspective. Everything else flows from that. You can't even explain January 6th without understanding the failure to get the epidemic under control. So uh, they're going to spend the money they need to, to get this pandemic um, to break its back. And uh, that's not going to come cheap, but that's not priority number one right now is, is saving money. It's just a reality. But to do all of those things, it's also going to require a certain um, friendliness with Wall Street and yep. friendliness with people who hire and create jobs and to do yep. all of that. Yep. How much of that necessity is going to um, complicate policymaking uh, that progressives would like to see? Well, there, you know, he is a veteran of the 2009 experience. And, you know, there are progressives who feel that the Obama administration, of course, was too quick to uh, forgive and forget and to allow the relationship with Wall Street to benefit, uh, to benefit the big banks again, as they would put it. And I think the reality is that, you know, Biden takes some of that lesson. Um, part of the reason he talks about accountability is because he knows that there were a lot of Americans who felt scorched by the failure to prosecute people at the tops of institutions that were ultimately responsible for America's financial distress. But he also believes that this is, has to be done in some level of partnership. This cannot be done at a moment in which we are uh, flat on our backs. We have a lot of shared incentives and interests. I mean, that word, interests, is the single most important thing to remember about Joe Biden. If you come away from today's conversation with one lesson, it's that Joe Biden sees everything in terms of understanding the other person's interests. And when it comes to dealing with Wall Street, he will say it is in Wall Street's interest and it is in the country's interest for the United States economy to thrive again. Uh, but obviously, we don't want to do it in a way that promotes abuses. But there, there's no world in which he can get this done by also turning his back ultimately on uh, financial power in this country. Who does he listen to? He listens to foremost um, people that have been with him through thick and thin. You know, this is uh, a guy who, after all, has been in politics for 48 years. And some of the people who were the ones who got him over the finish line to the presidency are people who've been with him a long time. And they're not always the names at the top of everybody's list. Somebody like Mike Donilon is a name that I think, you know, you and I who follow this stuff closely track the importance of somebody. But Mike Donilon was chief strategist in the campaign. And Mike Donilon was one of the people who was telling him along the way, you need to be, uh, you need to screen out all of this talk that you're done for, that you're finished. Stay to the, stay true to the plan, you know, hold true to what you think this campaign is about. Mike Donilon came up with the language about the soul of the nation and restoring the soul of the nation. That was a slogan that a lot of us in the political press thought, well, that sounds a little sweet and antique. It really, the soul of the nation. He was right on some level. People wanted to restore the soul of this country. So um, it, it varies from somebody like Mike Donilon, who's been with Joe Biden since I think shortly after the cooling of the crust of the earth, all the way, and I would say that if Mike Donilon was sitting here with me, all the way up to some of his newer, the newer voices in the room, um, people who may not agree with him on a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, he, if you look at his appointments, what you see is that there, I'll be blunt here, you see a lot more um, racial and ethnic diversity than you see ideological diversity. Yes. And I think that's something he's going to have to figure out how to navigate. There are going to be progressives who feel that they're not 
getting a seat at the table. And, and lastly, I want to ask you um, a foreign policy related question. Um, there has been a lot of scrutiny of his decision to choose General Lloyd Austin to run the Pentagon, who will, of course, require a waiver since he was so recently head of CENTCOM um, and thus muddies that what is supposed to be a clear divide between uh, the military and civilian structure. But, you know, Bob Gates, the former defense secretary, famously said <laughs> Joe Biden's been wrong in every 40 foreign policy decision for the, for the past 40 years. And as you account for in the book, he was wrong on Iraq. He was he overestimated that the government there would allow for U.S. troops to remain, which, of course, became a huge vacuum into which ISIS was allowed to take advantage and flourish. On Afghanistan, he doesn't want U.S. troops there either. Not a huge difference from President Trump. Um, what are some of his instincts, particularly in the Middle East, and, and where does that policy head? Well, interestingly, Margaret, I think you look not only at the mistake, and it was a tragic mistake to support the war in Iraq, but you also have to look at the lesson that he took from that, how he reckoned with it, how he talks about it. How candid, how frank is he about the failure uh, of that decision? And I think you see that he is kind of willing to reflect on that. Um, and it shaped the decisions he made afterwards. I mean, it's, it's quite distinct, the pattern. If you look at it, he was then much more conservative about the application of American power overseas, about getting involved in things we couldn't control. The intervention in Libya, he was opposed to it. He was even wary of acting on the intelligence uh, to go after Osama bin Laden on the day that we did. He felt we wanted to see more intelligence. Um, now, he was sort of more concerned about the political risk. If it failed, he said to Obama, you're going to be a one-term president if this doesn't work. Um, but he's become more restrained. And I think that that is you know, part of the process that he brings to this. Uh, every president for the last, as long as you and I have been doing this kind of work, has said, I want to do less in the Middle East. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and they have all found themselves remaining there. But it is a moment of extraordinary flux. And I think, you know, um, it, we have to acknowledge the fact that the Trump administration, one thing it will leave behind is a slightly rejiggered map, more than slightly. I mean, the deal of the, the, the so-called Abraham Accords, which are changing some of the byways of power and hostility, are something that the incoming administration is going to contend with. I can tell you one thing emphatically. This administration, like many before it, would hope to draw down its level of engagement in the Middle East and focus more on Asia. Uh, and the question will be whether they can pull that off. The New Yorker Magazine staff writer Evan Osnes's latest book is about Joe Biden, the life, the run, and what matters now. His previous book won a National Book Award, and he shared a Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting at the Chicago Tribune. Margaret Brennan moderates Face the Nation on CBS News, which was the most watched Sunday morning public affairs program last year. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Shauna Lewis. It was presented by the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. Our theme music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.